served as the first pastor and wife for this congregation from 1968 to 1981. And I want to take this opportunity to congratulate uh, the uh, charter members of this congregation because they made a gutsy move when they decided to form a new congregation. We came about a year after the church was organized. I had never done that. I had been to two other churches prior to coming here, but it was exciting uh, and it involved a lot of calling, meeting people as they move in or after they have arrived and worshiped with us sometime. Here we were coming to just a very small group of people and uh, hopefully building a, a church for Christ. As we look back, starting from a very small group to where we are today, God has really worked in the lives of people in this community. And we see the mission trips and uh, the outreach that goes on. The Vacation Bible School every summer is uh, a great outreach program as well as a great opportunity for the kids that are participating in it. The uh, mission trips especially, I think, have been proved to be uh, uh, very fruitful. My uh, desire for community is that uh, that uh, consistory and the congregation continue to get pastors and leaders who are Bible teachers. Because as we know, uh, the Bible is God's change agent. And as Paul says, it's the power of God unto salvation. It's God's dynamite. Well, I think continuing on as uh, you have been in the last many years, and. Uh, developing people to be leaders uh, themselves, and uh, let families be uh, united around the church and around Christ. Happy birthday. Yeah. Well, I just stood up here. They're already counting down the clock back there. Look back there. I, I, just, lost, I just lost 10 seconds. Huh. Um, I just want to uh, ditto what, uh, what Irv and Gladys just said. And Irv, Irv said that the, the gospel, the, the Bible, the scriptures, is the power of God unto salvation. And he said it's God's dynamite. Um, the word power there is dunamis, and that's the same root word we get the word dynamite from. So it's explosive, unstoppable uh, kind of power, and it, it, it changes whatever it blows up around. So we've got to be considering that when God's word is proclaimed, God's the one that sends it out. God's the one that makes sure that it will not return void. So we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna preach. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 4, and then on the screen you'll see Acts chapter 5, the first several verses. Um, but we're in this process right now of walking through our core values. I want to give you a little background on that before I offer a prayer. <clears throat> um, way back in the day, 1993 or 4, I got my first GPS unit. It was a Garmin. It had, almost, it had no maps. All it had was a screen that would find three to six satellites and there would be a little dot on it. 
And the little dot said, where, are you, where I am right now. Now, I know how sophisticated they've gotten now. I mean, everyone has GPS and tracking and all that stuff on their phone. But back then, if I were, like when I used to go up, up north to Mason County turkey hunting, um, we owned some property, but I didn't know it very well. And it was very swampy and I could get lost um, very easily. I mean, I, the first time I was wandering through before I bought the GPS, I came out, I had no idea where I was and what two track I was on. So this, these, these GPSs had these little things. You could push a little button and it creates what's called a waypoint. So you, you click this button, here's where I'm leaving from, here's camp. And then, and it was actually a TP back then. Um, and way back then. Uh, and then I would, I would walk off to where I'm going. And it, what I would do is every now and then push this little button. I could leave bread, breadcrumbs, but turkeys eat it. So, um, and, and hit another one and hit another one. But if I had two waypoints in a row, I could predict if I was going in the right direction, my starting point and the next one, I could predict based on my past and my present, which way I should head in the future. Because you can draw a line between those two waypoints and continue it on. Continue it on. So this church started 50 years ago with a group of people that decided that there were, there, were, there were neighborhoods about to explode around this area. So a bunch of people got together. They pulled a plow on the gladiola field, started to break ground to build this church. They didn't see yet what God was going to bring here, but they had this sense based on their past, based on God's calling of where they're supposed to go. So this 50-year anniversary, we're not just going to have a one-date thing. We're going to talk about this uh, from this point forward. And we're looking at our core values. Core values are values that, that you might call them character traits, or whatever, but core values are the values what we won't, that we won't compromise. And all of these values have been true of this church since its inception. We've re-articulated them or, or, or used a little bit different words over the last three or four years. And, and that's what we're talking about today. But keep in mind that we can see what God did 50 years ago. We can take a picture of what God is doing now. And that shows us, gives us some indication, God doesn't change. And his mission for his people doesn't change. So there's this idea that if we were a plant and we've grown into this and God's, God's word continues to go out, we have pretty good indicators as to where God is leading us next steps. What's happened in 50 years is amazing. What's going to happen in the next 50 years, I can't wait to see. I doubt I'll be here for all of them uh, unless I live to be, a sen- to, to be a century old. I hope not. It's hard. It hurts right now. I mean, I'm, I got a case of the 50s now. Um, so I'm going to read this passage or uh, this this. Uh, this core value, say a few words about it, and the message will be showing you what it isn't so that you can see what it is. So after the core value, we'll say a prayer, and then we'll get to the scripture. The core value here is called authenticity. Now, empowerment, we talked about that last week. That's a bit of a buzzword in corporate America. And I think authenticity is becoming that catch-all word. People use it as almost as an excuse to do whatever they want. That's not the intent here, but it says before excellence... And before professional, even before polished, we believe that authenticity is most important in our lives. Even though it may cost us, it is better to be real and honest than to put on a front. We don't want ministries or lives to be sloppy, but it's authenticity that will drive us, not perfection. In other words, be real. Let's pray. We'll see, we'll hear about Barnabas. And then we'll hear about two other people that it didn't go so well for. Lord, join us. You've already been here. You've already blessed families and blessed children and made promises. Lord, you've been doing that since you 
instituted your covenant with Adam and Eve and then with Moses and then with Abraham and then on and on and on till today. You have not changed. Your desire has been the same and your desire will be the same. That you will be our God and we will be your people. And you want to make us more of the person we're supposed to be. More of the church we're supposed to be. So Lord, give me the words to speak. And if there's something I have planned to say that is not of you, I don't want to say it. But Lord, if there's something you want said that I haven't thought of in preparation and prayer, then make it burn within me so I know it's your word for your people this day. Lord, let your word go out and not return void. We expect that it will accomplish what you want it to do. In Jesus' name we pray, through the power of your spirit, for the glory of God our Father. Amen. Authenticity. This part is not on your screen. It is in your Bibles. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Just think about that for a minute. I'm developing equity in my house. Okay, I have a mortgage. The bank owns most of it. Uh, But little by little, we pay a little bit more than we should every month. And the reason we were able to move into this house is because we developed equity in the other house. But just imagine that you own your house outright. There's a few of you in the room that, that, that that's the case. And if you felt compelled by God to sell your house, take all the proceeds, not just the profit, not just the capital gains, but everything from the sale of your house, and, and I'm standing up here one morning, I'm not claiming to apostleship here, but I'm standing up here one morning preaching the word of God, and you walk down here and you take in ones, fives, and tens, the $250,000 that your house might, might have been worth or what you sold it for, and you just laid it on the ground. And you said, distribute it to anyone as he or she has need. What would you think of that person? Crazy? No bit. Amazing, humble, probably crazy. Barnabas is one of the people that was lifted up and told, uh, we're still 2,000 years later, we're talking about this. He sold property, brought every, every, all of it, all of it. He brought, and he wasn't even probably the owner. And I don't mean that he stole it, but he's a Levite. Levites weren't allowed to own property. So he probably had to go bargain or negotiate with his family who might've been Jews and not Christian. They might've been religious, uh, faithful Jews, but not Christian because it doesn't say that him and his whole family were in the church. But imagine him going to his mom and dad or grandfather and grandmother and saying, hey, there's a bunch of people. They, I've been hanging out with them. It's, it's kind of, there's been some great stuff going on. There's been miracle, miracles happening. There's this new, this Jesus that, that died and, and was resurrected uh, from the dead and then he ascended into heaven. I saw it, dad. I saw it, grandpa. And, and we've got this piece of property the family owns for burial. You know, I'm not even sure we're all gonna die anymore. Can I sell it and give it to this group of people? 
And he's, he's named Barnabas. I mean, that's not his actual name. His actual name is Joseph, but he's renamed Barnabas, son of encouragement. I just want you to know that that word could mean son of prophet, son of encourager, son of paraclete. The word used is parakletos. And that's, that's the word paraclete. It's a title we actually give to the Holy Spirit. And this, this idea of the Holy Spirit as a paraclete, and I've talked about this before, it's, it's threefold. And I know, big surprise preacher with three points, but it's threefold. There's, this, there's this, this defender. We saw Jesus as a defense attorney last week. Remember in John chapter 9 with a man born blind? And he's, God does a miraculous sign in his life. He, he, he gives him sight when he'd never seen anything before. And then people start accusing him and hurling insults at him. And they kick him out of the synagogue. And he comes back to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he hurl insults at him? No. In fact, he turns the insults and the accusations off of the man back onto the accusers. That's the role that Barnabas played in the church. He was one that defended other people. Another role of a paraclete is, is, is a wingman or uh, uh, someone that's got your sick, someone that's, that, that's alongside and makes sure that, that your vulnerabilities are covered. People used to actually train with their paraclete. And the job, if I were the one on offense and I were thrusting with a sword or something, my paraclete's job was to cover, to cover my vulnerabilities. It's another role that the Holy Spirit has, right? To cover our vulnerabilities. And Barnabas, if he's named son of encouragement, that's a piece of it. And the other piece is that, that if you're running a race and you're running a marathon and you hit the wall, you just can't go any further, your paraclete comes alongside and gives you a sports drink and says, push through the next two miles and you'll make the whole thing. Just push through the hard part and you'll be able to do more with me here than you would be able to do on your own. So Barnabas is lifted up as this holy man. He's given a, a name named after the role of the Holy Spirit of God that these people are just getting to know. It's a wonderful, amazing thing. He's an authentic follower of Christ. He is who he says he is. He's humble, he's capable, and he's given a name from now on as one who encourages, one who walks alongside, one who defends the church. And then... Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the, for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it? was sold wasn't the money at your disposal what made you think of doing such a thing you've not lied to men but to God when Ananias heard this he fell down and died and great fear no kidding and great imagine Kurt why have you done this why have you lied you're not lying to man you're lying to God boom he's dead you think you might go huh Great fear seized the church. All who had heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came, not knowing what had happened, meaning that he had died. Um, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yep, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look. The feet of the men who buried your husband are still at the, door, at the door and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet 
and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Now, many of you are very familiar with this story. Because you've grown up in the church, you've received Sunday school training, you've been in cadets or gems, you, 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 somehow, some way, you've, you're, you're, one, of these, one of these Bibles down here has this story in it. You're familiar. But the first time you read something like this, you have to go, are you kidding me? I, they, they made an offering to the church and God killed them for it? That, that doesn't seem like God, does it? So Why? What's the point? Why would God do such a thing as that? I'm going to ask you to imagine. Imagine the church just getting started. It's weeks old. There are thousands of people. We know that there's more than 3,000. There's probably closer to six or 8,000 people in Jerusalem that consider themselves Christians at this point in time. And so the needs are, are growing, and, and the people that are coming aren't, aren't the rich they're typically the people that have no one, no voice elsewhere. And they come and they're trying to have their needs met and people are feeding them. There's been, there's been trouble in the church. There, there's trouble in the church even early on. I mean, the, the disciples weren't, or the, the people that were feeding the widows and the orphans, they were feeding the, the, the ones that were their people first and then the other people later. So they're kind of getting the leftovers and the apostles gathered together. They appointed Stephen who ends up being stoned later, but they, they appoint Stephen and they say, Stephen, you make sure that justice and mercy are done with those who can't care for themselves. And we're going to continue in the preaching of the word, the ministry of the word. So the church from that point forward has always been about the word going out and about mercy and peace and justice. You can't have one without the other. That's a tandem bike that's split in the middle. You can't ride a tandem bike that doesn't have both wheels and with the frame attached. There's problems. But imagine the problem that would come if later on, people realize that Ananias is fired, they sold the whole property, they, they give everything they had, and, and, and everyone bought it, everyone understood that. But every, every couple of months, Ananias and Sapphira, they kind of shoved away in a, maybe a clay pot or a gourd, some denarii and some talents. And every couple of months, when they get kind of tired of caring for people, they take off on a nice river cruise. Or they take off and they, they go to one of those all-inclusive resorts that they didn't have back then, but you get the picture. Now, when you think people would go, where did that, that money come from? Are they stealing from the poor? Oh, they sold that land. Maybe that wasn't the whole thing. Imagine what that would communicate to the people of God. If you find out that you can indeed lie to the church and therefore lie to God and there's no consequence. See, God at a very early age in the church, the church is not old. He's saying, you lie to the church you lie to God. Not my, I mean, it's what it, you didn't lie to man, you lied to, you lied to the spirit. They're trying to portray themselves as more holy, more righteous, more noble than they actually are. They're phonies. They saw the accolades that all these other people, that all the stuff that they, that they, that they sold and they gave and they laid it at the apostles' pre, uh, feet and these, these people are humble and they fall to their knees and they lay it down and they say, what's mine is the Lord's. Whatever the Lord's will is for what's mine, I want you to take. And so Ananias and Sapphira see this and they're like, man, you know, that's the new, that's the new cool. That's the new highly esteemed. That's the kind of person we want to be. 
So let's, hey, honey, let's sell this. And we'll hold back maybe 50%. Maybe they, maybe, maybe they gave 90 and they kept 10 for themselves. I mean, they didn't tithe, but maybe, maybe something. But, but when they ask, honey, just tell them. Tell them it's everything. Because we want people to see us as something more than we are. We want to be Barnabas and not Ananias. You see what happened? They were looking for esteem and acclaim. And now they are forever people of shame. We do remember them as crooks, as phonies, as fakes, as people who tried to convince God that they're more than they are. So let me ask you this question. And again, this message is not accusatory. It's just a reminder of who we are supposed to be. I mean, I, uh, before I get to the question, let me tell you this quick little story. I don't know when it was. I know it's a European city. And it was probably 50, 60 years ago because the, the Europe is so, has gone so far secular and so little Christian. Uh, I just found this out about a month ago that Scotland, the birthplace of the Presbyterian church in this, in this world, um, is now considered an unreached people. Four, less than 4% of the people consider themselves to be religious in any way Christian. Netherlands is that far behind. Hungary has been there for years, but it used to be Christendom, right? So there's this town, small town, good people, church-going people. I don't know if they were Catholic or Protestant, doesn't matter. But they had this festival every year, kind of like our Halloween. I don't know if they actually knocked on doors and did trick-or-treat, that kind of thing. But they had this tradition where they would put a mask on. All the adults put a mask on from 6 to midnight once a year on this particular day. And there's a little honest mischief, you know, that would take place. I don't know if they were egging houses or throwing their version of toilet paper over trees. I don't, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was pretty harmless for the first several years, maybe even a couple of decades. But as time went on, these people with the mask on started doing more and more horrific things because they knew that no one knew who they really were. They were pretending to be something else. They had a mask on. And so over time, they started, there were fights, broken windows, Houses were burned, businesses were burned, businesses were looted. We've seen this in, our, in the streets of our cities. When something goes wrong in our culture, people see that as a reason to go and take what isn't theirs. They, and, and it's under anonymity. Everyone's doing it, so no one's going to get busted. But the Salvation Army came along, and they started putting up signs every, the, the two days before the mask day, and it just said this, the signs all over town, God sees behind the mask. And I want you to look it up if you want to try to find out about this thing. I'm not going to tell you if they got better or they got worse. But I am going to ask you, do you know that God sees behind your mask? Do you know that you're naked before the Lord? Ananias and Sapphira thought that they could fool God's people and thereby fool God. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, that, that putting your best foot forward isn't a good thing. I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to be good and right and noble. I'm not, I'm not communicating that you should go around looking the worst that you can. I mean, I was at a wedding yesterday, and the, the father of the bride was the pastor. He was the one that was going to do the officiating, but he wanted to walk his daughter down the aisle. So they asked me to come and, you know, do the dearly beloved. We are gathered here today to witness this union. Um, and then to pray, and then to say, who brings this woman to be married to this man? 
Her mother and I do. He does the moi-moi. And I hand him his folder, and I go sit down. I'm done. But what if I was going to be authentic in the catch-all phrase way? What if I showed up in one of those, uh, you guys ever remember the movie 50 First Dates? Remember the brother, Samwise Gamgee? He played that. But he had that cut-off mesh shirt and coach's shorts. What if I would have shown up? With a microphone and look at me. I mean, that would not be a problem. I don't want to see me like that. But what if, I was like, oh, I'm just authentic. That'd be rude. It'd be wrong. Okay, so please don't take and think, well, he's just telling me that I'm supposed to be gross. That's not it. But authenticity is of the utmost importance to God. We see this all through the history of God with his people. I'm going to summarize the story of Jacob. Jacob, remember him? He stole, I mean, he was a rascal. He stole his brother's blessing by lying to and fooling his father. And God, I don't know why, but God decided to honor that blessing in Jacob because once the blessing's given, it can't be revoked. And so Jacob spends his whole life running from his brother Esau. Esau had become a warring tribe, a, a warring group of people. And, and Jacob's just, he's a finagler. And he goes off and, and he, has to, he marries the wrong woman. And then he, he has to wait another seven years and marries another woman. And, and, and then and he, he gathers this great wealth, these herds and, and people and family and children. And he finds out Esau's coming to get him. Whew. Now Jacob's not a warring group. Esau is, so Esau's coming to get him, and Jacob does what people do. He prepares for the worst. He cuts his family and, and fortune in half, sends half of them out in case Esau kills him. He can escape with the rest of them. He's a, he's a conniver. But that night, he decides to pray to God and say, you promised me. I'm holding you to your promise. And God wrestles with him. I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus, pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Some argue that it's an angel. Some say it's the God, the Father himself. It represents God, but he wrestles all night. And I, I just picture this, this God wrestling with Jacob. Jacob's a mere mortal, a mere man, and, and God all-powerful. I can just see him, yeah, 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 Ooh, ow, ooh. Yep, yep, just get off my leg. Like a dad with a two-year-old. But all night long, he's sweaty. He's got, he's got snot coming out of his nose. He's got dirt all in his parts. He's wrestled with God all night long in the desert, in the Negev. And God somehow, I don't know why, when the, when the sun comes up, God needs to leave, but he says that when the sun's coming up, you got to let me go. Sun's coming up. And Jacob does the most authentic and desperate thing. He holds on. He goes, I'm not letting you go till you bless me. Like God's, you know, whatever. But God honors it. And he goes, okay, Jacob, he doesn't say his name, but he goes, okay, what's your name? God knows Jacob's name. Jacob has to admit who he is because his very name means a heel grabber, one who takes what isn't his, conniver, sinner. And so Jacob, who are you? Sinner. That's when God has something to work with. And God changes his name and his character from Jacob, conniver, rascal, one who takes what isn't his, to Israel. A new people of God is named, the new name of the people of God is named for a man who all he did was said, God, I'm a sinner. He wasn't trying any longer to portray himself as if he was something he wasn't. He was honest to God. 
So I ask you, do you know you're naked before the Lord? Do you know that every wart, metaphorically speaking, but also literally every wart, every blemish, every scar, every extra area of fat that Spanx won't take away, every misdeed, every thought, every memory, every way you've mistreated anyone, every way you've ever been mistreated, that all of that God sees. Ananias and Sapphira thought, mistakenly, but thought that they could not only fool the people of God, but they could fool God. And my job to tell you today is two things. Number one, you can't fool God. Number two, let me ask you a question. Can you tell when someone is inauthentic? Can you tell when someone's, they're not telling the truth, the whole truth, or maybe they're telling too much truth. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're always, man, I was this, I did this, I did this, and all these, they, they developed this huge history for themselves, and you know I'm going to cut that about in half and think that about half of that stuff's real. Do you, can't you tell when someone's not being right? If you can tell when others aren't, don't you think that others can tell when you aren't? See, you're convincing yourself that you're fooling people who have a lot more capability than you give them credit for. We're hypocrites. Not all of us all the time. Sometimes we're a man of God. Sometimes we're a liar. Sometimes we're fake. And God says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. In other words, if you don't let yourself be who you are and you don't see God for who he is and see yourself the way God sees and portray that to others, there's some evil in you. And I don't like telling you that, but it's the scriptural truth. What's the biggest criticism that people that don't go to church have of the church? It's full of a bunch of hypocrites, right? Well, good, because if it weren't, it'd be empty. Have you always done everything God's called you to do? Of course not. Neither have I, nor will I ever. But I know what my masks are, and you know what your masks are. So I'm asking you, please, to recognize that God sees behind the mask and to inform you that others do too. So it is better to be honest, to be authentic, than to portray yourself as something you're not because it gives God something to work with and it gives other people something real to watch. People want you to fail as Christians. They so desperately want you to fail. But what if when you fail, you own it and you get up and you ask God to forgive you and you repent of it and you say, Lord, from now on, not my will, but yours be done. What if the people saw the people of God as authentic followers of Christ. Stumble, fall down, chip your teeth up, get stitches on your knees because you fall down so much. But what if, what if we were Barnabas and not Ananias? What if we were a people that said, yes, Lord. And when we mess up, we're a people that say, I messed up. It's funny to me that we feel like we can be more honest with God than we can with each other. God is holy. He is holy other. He is completely beyond us. He's, he's, he's intangible, but he's intimate. So why is it that I feel better about telling God 
when I've messed up than I do about telling Kurt when I've messed up. Because Kurt's another sinner. I don't know if you know that. He's messed up too. So authenticity would require me that when I'm telling God what I've messed up, that I'm to confess my sin to another. What if people saw us doing what the scripture tells us to do? It gives God something to work with, and it lives a life in such a way that other people can, by watching you, can see what kind of God you worship. That they will see your good works and then praise your Father in heaven. So folks, my encouragement to me and my encouragement to you is get real. Because you can't fool God. And honestly, you probably can't fool the person sitting next to you either. So it's better to be honest, even at a great cost to us, than it is to try to pull the wool over somebody else's eyes. Because if you lie to the church, you lie to God. And the person sitting next to you, if they're a follower of Christ, they're the church. Let's pray. Lord, I know it's getting late. I can hear the children crying. I ask that you give us the courage to be the people you call us to be. There were people 50 years ago who were willing to take a great risk and there was a potential of great cost, but you've done something powerful and amazing through it. Lord, let us be those people all over again. Do something powerful and amazing through us because we're willing to take the great risk at potentially great cost. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Authenticity brings you into God's grace. Putting on a mask takes you back to the day that sin entered the world. Remember when they did what, they, what, what God told them not to do? What'd they do? They covered themselves because they were ashamed and they hid from God. When you portray yourself to be more noble or righteous or holy than you are, you're hiding yourself from God to cover your shame. And God already knows what you're trying to hide from him. And confession is just telling God what he already knows. So tell God what he already knows. Tell somebody else what they probably already know. Repent, receive God's forgiveness, and then move forward being as authentic as you can possibly be before God and your neighbor. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his countenance toward you. Smile, God, smile at you and smile back and give you peace. And all of God's people say, amen. Go with and in.